Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Lisa Nandy, the Shadow Secretary of State for Leveling Up. And this episode has everything you would want from the ideal political party episode. Some really funny, silly stuff, as well as some very heartfelt, some very thoughtful and um, some very intelligent political analysis. So it's all in there, as you would expect from Lisa Nandy. Um, I should thank people, by the way, who email me, politicalpartypodcast at at gmail.com. Not just with the usual topic of strange and unusual places you've seen politicians uh, and guest suggestions. Um, but people who just get in touch with you know, various things. A guy called Matt Walker's got in touch. He lives in Wellington, New Zealand. Um, it's always nice to know where people listen. So thanks for letting me know that, uh, Matt. He's also, <laughs> he's made his own fantasy cabinet. Um, <laughs> so I just thought I'd share it with you because I thought it was quite interesting. He said, I've compiled a fantasy cabinet of my political crushes. In fact, he says before that, do you want to know something impossibly sad? Matt, I don't think this is sad at all. I'd be amazed if anyone listening to this show thinks it's sad. I think everyone will think it's cool. Anyway, I'm just going to share it with you because I thought it was quite an interesting mix. Education, Michael Portillo. Health, Nye Bevan. Defence, Nicholas Soames. Foreign Secretary, Paddy Ashdown, Home Office, William Hague, Chancellor, Ken Clark, Deputy Prime Minister, Neil Kinnock, Prime Minister, Ruth Davidson, and just for fun, I'll make Margaret Thatcher Chief Whip. Oh, my word. I love the fact that he's just done that and sent that in. Good on you, Matt. Thank you very much. So don't feel you just have to get in touch and let me know strange places you've seen politicians. It can be literally about anything. Politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for all of you who continue to come and see me on tour. I'm in Exeter this Sunday, and then, oh, I'm terrible at this, aren't I? Um, I mean, I'm doing a few nights at London Soho Theatre, then I'm in Peterborough, and you can go to mattford.com to check um, the the other dates. God, I'm a terrible self-promoter. But, of course, future shows. The next show of this, Wes Streeting, is going to be amazing. Um, so that's on Monday, the 30th of May, Two weeks after that, Gary Neville. Two weeks after that, David Davis. Two weeks after that, Lindsay Hoyle. Oh, my God. Anyway, on to today's show um, with Lisa Nandy, who I had on when she was standing for the Labour leadership. It's just such a funny person and just such great company. And what's really nice, I think, just in politics anyway, but certainly about what's happening with the Labour Party now, there are just a few more varied voices around and people with different lives and different perspectives, and they sound different. And... Lisa's got her own style. She's absolutely herself. And I think that you can always get a sense that she's also a very professional politician in the right way, but also can just be herself. And uh, obviously that's ideal for a show like this. Um, Of course, it had been a fortnight packed with stories ripe for comedy. Uh, It was a great atmosphere. So enjoy the stand-up, but then uh, enjoy Lisa Mandy. on how quickly 
Durham Constabulary goes to work. Tonight's second half could be the official launch of Lisa Nandy's leadership campaign. <laughs> Some people said, well, why is it taking so long to announce this? You know, he's known that he was, he was in danger. Why didn't he just say, on the day, if I get a fixed penalty notice, I'll resign? And it turns out one of the reasons he didn't was that he went to watch Arsenal play Leeds. You know, mate, you should have made more of that at the time, because the problem is now, everyone goes, oh, well, he, he's like Gordon Brown, you know, it's taken ages to make a decision. People knew he put off the most important decision of his career, because he wants to watch the football instead. I mean, that is like the most geezer reason. <laughs> the lot, I couldn't make the announcement on Saturday. Well, what's the Arsenal game? Well, I know it kicks off at three, but I was in the pub at 11. What's up, bloke? Well, I've been shit-faced at half time. I've got Arsenal fan TV. I'd announce it afterwards. I mean, that would have been amazing. I'd tell you another thing. If I get one, I'll fucking resign, mate. I don't care anymore. <laughs> I don't care what the fuck the police, by the way. Arsenal, Arsenal. It's the fact as well of the food that he's had, obviously. You know, he'd just had like Marks and Spencer sandwiches at the meeting in Durham. This would never have got this far. It's purely because it's a curry and a pint. And in our head as a country, we go, well, that sounds like a party. You know, that sounds like a fucking great night. A curry and a pint at the end of the day. I genuinely think he could have spun this more to his advantage. You go, of course I had a beer with it. Look, it was a working day. It was in the itinerary. There's nothing wrong with having a curry. And of course I had a pint with it. It would be no British person <laughs> has a curry without a pint. I was reflecting our national values. <laughs> having a curry without a San Miguel would have gone against everything I believe in. <laughs> I think he really could have... I mean, it also, you know what's mad is having this whole conversation about Keir Starmer having a curry. No one has asked the most important question. What did he have? I want to know exactly what, when anyone mentions curry and then doesn't tell me what they've had, I'm like, what's the point in having this conversation? I mean, in a way, what he had could be far more important in the court of public opinion than whether or not it was against the rules of Covid at the time. Keir Starmer joins us now on the Today programme. Keir Starmer, you're facing another leadership crisis. There are rumours going round in today's tabloids that all you had was a coma. <laughs> and even after that, you asked the waiter for a big glass of cold milk because you said your mouth was... Nick, I've never heard anything so ridiculous in all my life. Anyone there on the night knows, but I'll tell you what I had. I had a chicken ticker starter. I'd sagaloo, of course I had it on your bargey. I'd rice to share, garlic, no. I actually had the ring stinger special, by the way. <laughs> to sign a disclaimer before you eat it. The idea that I'll have a call, it's just misinformation. The reason I haven't come and done, I haven't been able to sit down for a fortnight. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> but what about the poppadoms, though? This is the real issue. Many people will say, did you take a poppadom just for yourself? Or did you put your hand into the plate of poppadoms and break everyone else's, taking that decision unilaterally? Nick, I would never, look, I never understood why people do that anyway. I'll take my own poppadom, I don't touch anyone else's, certainly not during a pandemic. <laughs> never understood why people do it. You don't do that with any other food. No one says, I'm having a bowl of frosty, you stick your hand in the middle of it. It would be wrong. It's so funny as well, you know, like these details of British politics are on the news. Like Ross Atkins, who does this, explain this. He goes, at 10.25, Keir Starmer then had food from the Spice Lounge Curry House. <laughs> I feel like that feels like just the start of a story, doesn't it? 
At 11.30pm, after three San Miguels, he turned to one staff member and said, fuck it, should we see if that club's still open? <laughs> if you want to uh, um, do a Keir Starmer impression, by the way, I only really discovered that, uh, arguably I can't do one yet. Uh, <laughs> I'm still learning the trade. Uh, the phrase to get, and every time he says it, it's the most Keir Starmer phrase to say is Metropolitan Police. The way he says it, the Metropolitan Police. <laughs> it's being investigated by the Metropolitan Metropolitan Police. The Metropolitan Police. He, he never says the Metropolitan Police. I talk to the Metropolitan The Metropolitan Police. For any hobbyists uh, listening at home. Of course, what's mad is we're all talking about this beer and curry. At the time, it's now been revealed that 10 Downing Street has received 100 fines relating to the behaviour in that building as a result of COVID. I mean, there is no comparison. Even the most partisan person surely would recognise the difference between Keir Starmer having a curry at the end of the day and the willful flouting of the laws these people made. A hundred fines. I mean, that is the most fined household in Britain. <laughs> so much criminality in that building. It's going to end up on one of those London crime walks in the future. <laughs> 50 years' time, one of those Victorian goths leading people <laughs> down Whitehall. And that was the story of the demon barber of Fleet Street. And now, to the most notorious address in 2020's London, 10 Downing Street. More criminals per square foot than any other place in the Western world. Some say if you listen at night, you can still hear the screams from when they ran out of Prosecco. <laughs> Can you hear the wheels of the trolley going to the co-op on the Strand? <laughs> All that is left now is a plaque that commemorates the death of Rishi Sunak's career. <laughs> uh, of course, the local elections um, have provided us with plenty of uh, uh, results to talk about, hard results that sort of give us a picture and sort of don't. I mean, the last few weeks, the amount of Labour figures that have used analogies for how Labour's doing. I saw one Labour <laughs> said, we're at base camp, all we've got to do is hike to the summit. And you're like, it's taken you 12 years <laughs> to do the easy bit. All that lies ahead is the most treacherous hike of your life where most of you will die of hypothermia or madness. <laughs> I heard someone else say, we're one nil up at half time. Mm, I don't know, I mean, you're at least four nil down on aggregate, surely. <laughs> VAR would have to, something to say about at least one of the goals. Oh my God. I mean, some of them, they just, they become more and more torturous. Yep, we're on the motorway. And uh, we've, we've been past three services without needing a piss. So we're, we're doing that. We're doing that. Yep, we're on a date and we've got to second base, um, but, we, but no one else is on the date yet. So, you know, we're, we're doing it by ourselves, but, we, you know, we're very popular with our own. Sinn Féin winning in Ireland. I mean, I know that times have changed, but there is a part of you that goes, that feels like this is going to be the start of something different. You know, so for a certain generation, like, oh, it's cool, yeah, yeah, maybe United, I'm not, nothing against United. When you hear that sh the former political wing of the IRA have now won in the local elections, because here's a bit like hearing that Al-Qaeda have won in France. You're like, this all feels a bit close to home now, uh, but not for the SNP, who are delighted. Uh, John Swinney, the Deputy First Minister, said, this is great. Uh, we think Sinn Féin will really be able to challenge the UK government. You're like... I mean, should have seen how they did it in the 80s. <laughs> Nicola Sturgeon tweeted, many congratulations to Sinn Féin falling over themselves to pay tribute to Mary Lou MacDonald. You're like, this does feel, there's definitely part. You're like, what is it the SNP have got a hard on for? Always with like the anti-British violent leaders, Vladimir Putin, Sinn Féin. If ISIS had a spring conference, Sturgeon would probably speak at it. <laughs>
You can tell, actually, some of the harder-core Scottish nationalists are definitely jealous that they never had a terrorist wing. <laughs> you can tell this part of them looks, fuck, we should have tried a bit of that. Imagine having the Scottish Republican Army in the 80s. Prime Minister, we've received a coded message from the SRA. It says, your da's a pure fanny. <laughs> The final story, I mean, there's been so much happening this last fortnight, but Lee Anderson, the Tory MP for Ashfield, um, is a unique character. And he, he's one of those people who, if someone else said some of the stuff he says, it would sound ethical. When he says it, it sounds like a terrible threat. And he got up in Parliament this week, he said, we got a food bank in Ashfield and everyone could come and visit it. And when people get a food parcel, they have to sign up for a cooking course and, a, and another course. And you think, if someone else said that and said, oh, you know, people who use food banks often they don't know how to cook, so what we do, we give them those skills and then it helps them in life. With him, it sounds punitive. <laughs> they come up, they get a slap round the face, especially if they're early, and then we give them a food parcel and a good old kick in the bollocks. <laughs> For their own good, Mr. Speaker. There's always a sort of darker element at it with him, because he is the guy, if you're not familiar with Lee Anderson, he is the man who said that um, troublesome council tenants, this is what he said, he said, I'd have them in a tent in a field, picking potatoes and other seasonal vegetables, cold shower, lights out at six, up again the same morning. Now obviously there's a number of elements of that. Firstly, other seasonal vegetables. Like, not fruit or flowers, but other seasonal vegetables, they're fine. Why a cold shower? You've already got them in a tent in a field, mate. Sure, like the idea that if the shower was warm, you're mollycoddling them. You can't get in a warm shower. It's got to be code. It's got, you've got six in the morning, lights out, sent to the field. But he was the same guy who joined the Euros. I mean, boy, did he get this call wrong. After the Croatia game, when England took the knee, he said, I'm not supporting England now because they're taking the knee. Now, he probably thought we'd go out at the group stage. I mean, we were in that tournament for a month and almost won the damn thing. It must have become impossible for him towards the end. Hey, Lee, we're in the final. You're going to come round and watch the final? No. I shall be sat at home for 90 minutes in my flat, staring at a picture of the Queen, <laughs> eating a bowl of potatoes and other seasonal vegetables. <laughs> Uh, tonight, uh, Lisa Nandy joins us as an MP of 12 years, a former Shadow Foreign Secretary, now the Shadow Secretary of State for Leveling Up. Not just one of the brightest talents in the Labour Party, one of the most popular politicians in the country. Please raise the roof for Lisa Nandy! <laughs> Honestly. Am I in trouble? What a start. <laughs> what a start. But I guess you, everywhere you go now, people must be asking you if you're standing for the leadership. <laughs> How do you answer a question like that? It depends if Keir's asking you or not. Oh, God. <laughs> I did hear the first half, so I knew I was going to have to deal with something like this. But um, most of the time, and this is the honest truth, well, where I go... A bit on you. I don't know if there's... It's not, not for people with hair, these. No, no, no offence, Matt. <laughs> Um, most of the time, when I go around the country, there is a lot of warmth, not just towards me, but towards Labour, but also a question on people's lips about what we're going to do to help deal with the crisis in the country. And I think you sort of alluded, I mean, it was a bit jokey, but I think it was a bit serious too in the, in the first half about the base camp comparison. <laughs> um, and to risk the wrath of the base camp comparison, um, I think there is a mountain to climb 
and there, there always was. In 2019, when people left us in our Labour heartlands, I genuinely thought it might be permanent. Um, and it was painful for a lot of people. They didn't feel like they'd left at Labour, they felt like we'd left them. And the local elections for me were a really big moment because I think people are looking at us again. I think they want to know, the bar has moved. They're not saying, you know, are these people even worth the time? They're saying, what are you going to do for us? And that is one of the reasons why Keir moved me into this job, is that we've got to, you know, we've got to, get, we've got, we've got to take it to the next place now. We've got to prove to people that in the face of a government whose only strategy is to pull everyone down into the gutter, to say there's no alternative, we're all the same, things can't be different, we've got to prove to people that not only are we different, that the country can be different, but that we've, we can actually be trusted to deliver it. So we started, but you know, I'm under no illusions about how steep that road back to power actually is. And, and talking of the bar being moved, I've brought you a selection of lagers. Oh, I, think I thought we're just you'd never ask. <laughs> we're just going to check that mic. Thanks I think maybe lot. it's the hair. Sorry yeah. about this. I mean, you've got hair. It's not my fault. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought, because when I asked your staff what your favourite drink was, they said lager, which is obviously quite broad these days. So I've got you a mix of Holston, which is my favourite, mm. Pilsner uh, Quell, which I think is... The first ever. What is, it? what is a golden goose? That's a sort of, um, that's, um, well, it's a figure of speech, but it's also a, um American lager. What do you usually drink, then? It feels like you don't like any of no. the rules. No, no, I'm going to go for the pills. Okay. Is that right? That's good, yeah, it's good, strong, high-quality European lager. Can I drink it out of the tin, or do I have to? You drink it however you like. <laughs> <laughs> Just drink it Pierce out. a hole in it and drink it. <laughs> Well, depends what you ask me. <laughs> but they're all yours. You do, I'm slightly gutted. I put Holston out there because it's my favourite. And I was kind of hoping... Well, you can have it. I, uh, uh, well, I'm genuinely trying to watch my waist. Okay, but I'll see how you get on. It's meant to be a party, no? Yes, it is. It's but it's table. also... It's, you know, without trying to sound like I'm making a joke, for me, it is also a work event. So... Um, <laughs> If I get drunk, then I'll be all, you know, it's, it's fine for the guests to be drunk, that's kind of the point. I'm just, uh, just going to sit here and drink this beer until <laughs> it's over. So let's expand the base camp analogy then. If Labour's at base camp now, it's got a mountain to climb, is that mountain the size of Arthur's seat? Or is it Everest? Well, I'll go for Arthur's seat, I think. Yeah. It's nice at the top. I'm yeah. not sure what it's like at the top of Everest, but it always struck me that, you know, that it's not quite as pleasant as sitting at the top of Arthur's seat. Um, can I just make clear that I didn't use the base camp analogy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, just that... I think this... Oh, OK, let's leave the mountain, let's leave the mountain out of it. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of people in this country who've spent a long time voting against things. I felt for a lot for ages now, that most people have been voting to stop other political parties rather than really feeling inspired and excited by an offer of a political party. Didn't feel huge levels of enthusiasm for Cameron when he came into power in 2010. I think you know, a lot of the, the people who voted in 2015 felt the same in 2017, in 2019. You know, sometimes it's very local. People are just vo voting for their local MP because they're so uninspired. I, I think there's something about some of the things that we've been doing and saying over the last 
few months that are important. I, un I know that people haven't heard enough of it from us, but you know, when Rachel says we're going to tax the big oil and gas producers to take money off your energy bills, it's not because we think that's the be-all and end-all of what this country can achieve to take money off people's energy bills, but it's because there are choices to be made, and in politics you make choices, and we will make those choices. We're not afraid to say so, and we'll always back them. We'll always back them over people who are taking, who are extracting, who are... Um, you know, making a lot of money over people who are really struggling to survive. And I just, I feel like we've started, really, to lay out how things can be different. And when Keir rang me in, uh, whenever it was, November, October, November, and said, will you move into the levelling up job? That is exactly what we discussed, is that, you know, the, I, I walk around this country and I, I see in Wigan and in places like Wigan, I just see people who are struggling to keep their heads above water, not just some people, but most people now, working harder than ever before. I, you know, my parents used to work very hard, but they didn't have two or three jobs and do shifts and you know, do childcare on shift just to make ends meet and then get to the end of the week and find that they just simply can't keep afloat. That isn't just the experience of some people now. That's the experience of most people. And this is particularly acute in places that built this country's wealth and influence, you know, did the dangerous, dirty, difficult work in the mines and the factories and on the railways and in the mills. And they're watching the settlement that we've created and saying, how can this be right? That if my kids want to do okay, if they want to actually have a decent life rather than just, as Bobby Kennedy once said, just grind for a bare living, then they've got to get out. They can't stay here. They can't contribute to rebuilding their own town They've got to move hundreds of miles away just to get those choices and those chances. That just seems to me there's something fundamentally broken about a country where people don't have those options and where we've written off most people and most places. And that is basically why I moved into this job, is because we're not an opposition, we're an alternative. And we've got to go out with ambition and show how this country can be re rebuilt from the ground up. Why shouldn't young people in places like Barnsley have the chance to power us through the next century like their parents and grandparents powered us through the last? When I go all over the world, in Germany and in the United States, countries are investing in making sure that their young people have the chance to do that. And that's, that's the vision that we believe in. That's why when Rachel Reeves says at conf Labour Party conference, we're going to put 28 billion a year every year for a decade into tackling climate change and investing in our communities. That's what she means. She means good jobs in Grimsby and decent chances for young people. She means rebuilding real so that young people don't have to get out to get on, so that people have money back in their pockets to spend and high streets are thriving and communities see a future for themselves that matches their level of ambition that they have. That's what we believe in, in the Labour Party. That's what I've been put into this job to give voice to. And... You know, I wanted Michael Gove to succeed in this agenda. It's personal to me. I've got skin in the game. This is about my friends, my family, my little boy, and whether he gets to stay and contribute to the future of his town. But if he doesn't, and I don't think that this agenda under the Tories is really going anywhere, if he doesn't, then we will. I will. We will. Keir will. And that's why all this stuff about curries and beers and all the rest of it, it's just a nonsense, isn't it? The future of this country is at stake. And we've got to go and fight through that wall of noise that everything is the same and show the country 
that I've believed in all my life but never yet seen is not just a possibility but a probability if you get the right people into government. So this. <laughs> Sorry, you're going to have to make a joke now. No, no, no. Well, I'm just <laughs> there's so much to talk about, and I don't want to lose any of those threads. But you alluded to it at the start of that that when Keir Starmer rings you and asks you to serve as Shadow Secretary of State for Leveling Up, he's moving you from Shadow Foreign Secretary. So when your phone rings. Does it come up Keir Starmer, or was it no caller ID, or how does that, how did the <laughs> Or something else. Don't answer. <laughs> it just, just says Keir Starmer. Let me just clarify, Keir Starmer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know what reshuffles are like. I mean, you can't really know what they're like unless you've been in one. I have never been in a reshuffle before this one where I've managed to either... Oh, actually, no, Keir broke the trend for me. Before Keir, I'd never been in a reshuffle where I hadn't either been sacked resigned or managed to argue myself into a position that was lower than the one that I'd originally been offered. <laughs> so the first reshuffle was, was amazing for me because that was the first, the Keir's first set of appointments because that was the first time when I haven't managed to achieve that. Um, and he offered me Shadow Foreign Secretary the first time, which was a bit of a surprise. I'd just run a, a Labour leadership bid based on the needs of post-industrial towns, which is my thing. I talk about towns so much it became a meme. And uh, he basically offered me all the towns in the world. <laughs> um, but it was also a bit of a surprise because, to be honest, I'd sort of thought, having stood against him in the la Labour leadership contest and never really seen it work out for leadership contenders who then try and go into to, to, to form a shadow cabinet together before, that I would probably get put in a cupboard for the next few years. So it was a, it was a surprise and it was a big and generous offer. And... Although it wasn't quite what I'd had in mind, I certainly wasn't going to say no. And then he rings me a couple of years later and he says, right, levelling up, you know, this is the future. It's not just the future of the general election, it's the future of this country. And you've got to do it. You've got to get on the pitch and you've got to help me win a general election. Um, I was, I was, it was exactly what I'd asked him for. I hope I'm not breaking any confidences, sorry, Keir. But it's what I'd asked him for two years earlier. Um, in like fairness Santa. to him... In fairness to him, it didn't exist. I've had to go on this tour around the world. Uh, metaphorical tour, I should say. Literally went nowhere during that time. Um, I said to him, hang on a minute. Two years ago, you asked me to be the Shadow Foreign Secretary. You promised me foreign travel. And I am now the first Shadow Foreign Secretary in, Wig in history who's never left Wigan. And he said to me, yeah, but in fairness to me, you can now make that joke for the rest of your life. Um, and the next day, I got on a bus to Barnsley. <laughs> um, it is absolutely my cup of tea. Yeah. This is what I came into politics for. There are people who contributed to this country, who drove us, who built us, who were the absolute engine of British industry, the backbone of this country, who still pay a very heavy price for it now. You know, m my community in Wigan, we have the legacy of ill health that comes from people doing that difficult, dangerous work down the mines for, set, for set a century. And they've been written off, effectively, for far too long. I came into politics in order to change it. I came into politics to prove that it can be different, to give them a voice, and I think at times that's been really difficult during Brexit um, <coughs> and the Corbyn years that pitted me against my own party, but I did it anyway because I believe in them, and more importantly, I believe in what this country could be if we backed them and we backed them to do what they did before and they will do again. If I've learned anything in 12 years of elected politics, it's that people who have a stake in the outcome or skin in the game 
they work harder, they try for longer, they think more creatively, they do more and they never give up because everything is at stake for them. And that's how you get better decisions, that's how you get extraordinary things happen, whether it's saving all the jobs at our local hospital or um, the, you know, saving Wigan Athletic. You know, I've watched people in my community do this over and over again when the chips are down and for too long decision making has been completely taken out of their hands. They've been treated with total and utter disrespect. They've been, they've been written out of our national story and they demand the right to make a contribution again. And so, you know, he rings me, he says, levelling up. I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going around the world, but I am going to fix this country for good with his support, with his help, and with me behind him and Rachel and the team to, to, to give voice to this. And, you know, i just say one last thing and then I'll stop banging on about it. But I also, you know, for all of this talk in the last few weeks about like you know who's up and who's down and the runners and riders in labor it does feel more like a team than anything i've been part of for the last 12 years i mean i got sacked three times under ed Miliband from the front bench so it's no wonder that i didn't really feel i don't know what the team was like because i wasn't in it but um you know and i was in fairness to jeremy Corbyn, i resigned from his so you know i wouldn't know know that either but you know, there is, a, there is something that happens to you after 12 years of opposition and the biggest crisis that I can remember in this country affecting most families and most businesses, and that is that you really focus. We've got one shot at this. We have got to get into government. It's not because Labour won't exist after the election. It's because people haven't got the luxury of us mucking around. And, I, you know, do, do I think we will win the next general election. I would never be so complacent as to say so, but do I think we can and must win the next general election? Yeah, I absolutely do. So, just to return to the call before we come into the politics. So, when, when the call comes at Keir Starmer and it's reshuffled down, <laughs> do you go, oh, what, what did you think was going to happen? Um, well, you do tend to... Can I be allowed to say this? You know, if I actually, I can't see most people in the audience. <laughs> so th this is like, this is all done on purpose, right? You've got your armchair, you've got your beer. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> um, I mean, you do tend to gain these things out a bit, right? So reshuffles are like really unusual. I came into Parliament having worked um, as a housing caseworker for a Labour MP, and then I went to work for a youth homelessness charity and then a children's charity. And this is not normally how it goes in a normal professional organisation. You don't normally read a lot of speculation about whether you're going to be sacked in favour of the guy from accounts <laughs> <laughs> or whether the, the person in marketing is about to take the CEO's job. Um, you, you know, normally you just have a, you get a job, you do it, if you do it well, great, and you might get promoted, and if you do it badly, then um, you'll have an appraisal. It doesn't work like that in politics. So... I'd sort of, you know, for a long time, Kira and I had sort of gone around the fact that, you know, I'd, I'd, run, I'd run this pitch about post-industrial towns, and for a decade before that, I'd been feeling and hearing what was happening in large swathes of the country that were just completely ignored by the political system and by the media. And I'd felt what was coming a long time before. In 2010, when I was elected, you could feel the ground shaking beneath your feet. You know, Brexit wasn't the moment that I and other MPs who live in those, those communities knew there was a problem. I mean, before that, we had this massive, sudden 
dramatic spike in support for UKIP in places that had consistently seen working class people run out far right parties from their town over and over again for 100 years. That should have told us that something was wrong in Scotland. You know, we had this huge upsurge in support for nationalism and uh, the Indy Ref that we, I think because it was won by um, in that because of that we didn't really take enough time to understand the implications of people who just felt that politics was not speaking for and delivering for them. Um, so, so yeah, I'd had an inkling that something was to come. I think he might have wanted to offer it to me earlier, but um, the last reshuffle, if you remember, ended with Angela locked in a pub <laughs> down in Vodka's uh, <laughs> with, with Keir Messinger and, uh, you know, ended with, a, with 400 job titles. <laughs> um, so I think by, that, that by the time he got round to me last time, he'd so the appetite for change had sort of diminished <laughs> amongst the whole Labour movement. I think we were just keen to, to crack on. Um, so I was, I was pleased, but, you know, this is a, this is a big moment for our team you know, can we do this or not? He's, he's, he's bet the house on a bunch of us. You know, these, these are the people that we're, are being pitted against one another right now. You know, me and Rachel and Wes and others, we're being pitted against each other in the media. But he's bet the house on us as a team. And we've got to deliver. We've got a Prime Minister who is the worst Prime Minister within my lifetime. And we've got a crisis in this country that is unparalleled. We've got, we've got to win. And what is he like as a... Sort of simultaneously, kind of boss, but a colleague. It's a tricky thing, really, isn't it? Because he's all as any leader would ever be a particular situation where they've said they're going to resign if the police make a particular decision. Must be slightly looking over his shoulder a little bit. Does that ever inform the interpersonal relationship between you and him? To go, Lisa, you have a good weekend. You plan anything? Or? <laughs> <laughs> You're busy lately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's um. He's really straight, actually. So he's not, um, he's not, how do I put this? You know, Ange the way Angela describes it is they're sort of yin and yang. Yeah. And, you know, if you, I hesitate to say go for a drink, because, <laughs> you know, go for a drink, not at lockdown times, yeah. and perfectly <laughs> legally and within the law as part of a work event. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if you, you know, you know, he'll, She'll be the outgoing one in the pub, you know, and I'll be the chatty one, and we're, you know, we're the ones that are more likely to be on the karaoke machine. Yeah. And he's less so. <laughs> but he's more direct than any Labour leader that I've ever worked with. Okay. He's put a team around him, I think, that is quite unusual in that we had good people around other Labour leaders, but he is completely relaxed about putting people into posts where they add something that he doesn't. You know, Angela is extremely plain talking, as she proved on your show. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Keir is more cautious. He's more careful and considered. But the combination of the two of them is really important. You know, Rachel and I were, were chatting the other day. You know, she and I working together on the levelling up agenda, and she laughed and said, I'm bringing the spreadsheets and you're bringing the stories. You know, but I'm, I'm trying to, to, to connect with people about the future of this country, and I would absolutely trust her. In fact, I trust her more than I trust myself with my money. Um, <laughs> but that, that may say some more about me than about anything else. But you know, she's 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 really she's she's the real deal when it comes to to the economy and thinking through how you respect the fact that 
you know, working class people don't have a lot of money at the moment and it's theirs and we will be careful with how we spend it because it's theirs and they don't have a lot of it. Um, so he's, ha you know, one of the co first conversations that I ever had with Keir was that, you know, went in to see him after the leadership contest. He'd offered me this job as Shadow Foreign Secretary. Um, he said to me, it's important that we have a close working relationship. It just matters to me that we're a team. You know, we said we'd be a team during the leadership contest and it matters to me that we make it real. It mattered to me as well, but it mattered to the whole Labour movement, actually, and it mattered to the country because t the truth is we're the official opposition, we're the only alternative to the Tories, and if we, don't, if we don't work as a team, then we let the whole country down. And he said to me, I'm completely relaxed, by the way, about people having ambitions. You know, if you wanted to do it again... I was like sort of rocking backwards and forwards <laughs> thinking about it. And he said, but, you know, I'm really relaxed about it. I just, you know, I'm not relaxed about people trying to undermine me when we're in the job, but I am completely relaxed about the idea that I'll, you know, that there'll be lots of good and worthy successes should I fail. And, but I don't intend to fail, and that's the point of giving me the job. I mean, I, you know, it's a side of him that you don't see as much, I guess, but I think maybe started to see a little bit when he did that thing about you know, resigning if he got a fine. Yeah. It does matter to him, actually. It matters that he leaves a decent legacy. You know, for us, that, that has to involve getting into government, but also behaving with decency and, you know, building up a good, strong team along the way as well. I hadn't really seen that, if I'm honest, before, and I think that that is one of his real strengths. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So just to, just to expand on maybe the pub analogy. So if in the pub, you and Angela Rayner would be the outgoing ones on the karaoke machine, Kia would... I mean, God knows where me and Angela would have got to. There was this moment <laughs> during, um, during uh, the... Do you remember when... Who was it? Dominic Raab and Liz Truss were having this fairly unseemly squabble about, about who, who got, got to Chevening have... Chevening or yeah. yeah. So Chevening is like, you know, it's the sort of grace and favour place in the countryside that the Foreign Secretary gets to use. And... Rob had just got sacked. I'd like to claim credit for that, but I think he did that all by himself. <laughs> uh, so he just got sacked as the Foreign Secretary for lying on a beach while Afghanistan fell. And um, he had got... He'd done an Angela Rayner, right? He'd got 5,000 job titles. And so 
he said, I want Chevening as well. And Liz Truss said, yeah, right, <laughs> good luck with that, mate. And this, went, this managed to make its way into the media and went on for a while. And I messaged Ange and said, oh, my God, we're just sharing it now. <laughs> like, we would have such great fun. I mean, that place has got, like, 400 rooms or something. And I was like, we need, we'll have a karaoke room. And she was like, karaoke suite, mate. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, I think what could do. Yeah. That'd be great. So you guys would be the sort of karaoke party ones. Kira would still be engaged. You'd be at the pub, you'd be at the bar, maybe talking to people about football or the law, stuff like that. And then <laughs> those things. Probably over. both. A bit of both, VAR, ideal. I was gonna say. <laughs> the rules are clear. Yeah. You know, he has actually tried to explain the offside rules to me once before. Yeah. This was while we were fighting like tooth and nail to save Wigan Athletic. Yeah. And I said to him, I don't have a clue what goes on on the pitch. You know, I'm a big supporter of my club for the community work that they do. I've never pretended to know the first thing about what happens on the pitch. And he started explaining it to me. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> if the ball's played forward in the opponent's half, <laughs> the position of the last attacker of the last defender. Some canny. But they change all <laughs> We cannot allow. What's the place? Stockton Park. So the VAR thing. Now, <laughs> yeah. now you, so. can, you can ridicule all of this, right? But dur during the time we were trying to save Wigan Athletic yeah. from the absolute cowboys who'd sunk us, allegedly, to hide a gambling debt on the other side of the world, and all of the people that, and institutions that were set up to protect us had just failed us and fallen one by one, he was the guy who was going out on LBC and other places and giving us a shout-out and encouraging us to keep going. And you know, actually, like he does genuinely love football. It's not a, it's not, you know, like you said in the, in the opener, if only you just said I was at the football. <laughs> I'm too busy for all of this. I mean, he does, he does love a game of football, loves watching it, loves playing it. But it did matter to us, actually, that we had that sense of solidarity. It mattered to our whole town. Because in the end, what I saw with Wigan Athletic was this was a microcosm of the problem in the whole country. You know, an institution that stood at the centre of our town for hundreds of years, that was built by and survived because of the people who support it, was allowed to be, we think, uh, sold off to hide a gam and collapse to hide a gambling debt on the other side of the world. And nobody was there for us. They either backed the wrong people or they stepped out of the way. They treated the fans like a nuisance when these were the people who raised... Um, nearly 100 grand in a couple of days to save their own club in a town where average incomes are way below average and people just don't have money to spare. We had a guy who walked into reception with 60 quid in an envelope, really old guy, put it on the counter at the DW Stadium and said, it's my entire savings, but I need you to have it. And he'd walked all the way into town from a couple of miles away. This is, these are the people who saved our club, but doesn't it tell a story about how wrong we've gone when the people with most at stake had the least power and were just utterly disrespected throughout the process. And there were loads of good people who helped us. Special shout out to Rick Parry, because the EFL gets a lot of grief and I've given him a lot of grief in my time. Uh, so, but he, he, you know, he, he's the chairman of the EFL, he stepped in and he did everything within his power, some of which can never be said but there were lots of people who did that, but they did it despite the system, not because of the system, and that's what we've got to fix in this country, I think.
But what a great turnaround. Wigan now top of League One. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> <laughs> and not just that, but think where we've come from to where we are now. Bit of an analogy for the Labour Party, I think. <laughs> but also, think how much further we've travelled than Nottingham Forest. Well. <laughs> well, Forest, of course, on the verge of um, the Premier League. Two games, two games from greatness. Um, uh, it, it, what is interesting, actually, is that Derby have been relegated. And they've oh God, look, it's, it's, a key, it's doing a key. But, but I didn't mean, I didn't want to talk about it. Did you say that's key? I was giving you an analogy, yeah, yeah, <laughs> plenty of times. I've given you, I've given, I was giving you an analogy yes. that's better than the base camp, everyone dies on the way up analogy. Yeah. <laughs> it's promotion from League One. But, of course, Wigan, in my lifetime, I remember being in the Premier League for a bit. We won the FA Cup. Yes. Best day of my life. Whole of Wigan on tour at Wembley. It was like, no offence, because I, I do, I lived in London for some time and I, I loved, Hammersmith was my patch and I absolutely loved it. But this was like the London that I can get behind, right? I was in Wembley and the whole of Wigan was at Wembley. It was amazing. <laughs> I walked through the town on the way to the train station that morning and it was deserted and I was like, well, it's quiet for an FA Cup final day. They were all down at Wembley, <laughs> having the time of our lives. We're going on tour, pie kebabs, pie bombs, you know, a pie, pie bombs. kebab. So pie kebab is like lots of kebab, lots of pies. Yeah. Together. <laughs> On a skewer. Yeah. Um, a pie bomb. Do you know what a bomb is? Yeah, like a bread cake, it? a cob. Yeah, a bread something. cake. That's what they call it in Hull, isn't it? I bread cake. Like, so, a, yeah, like yeah. a... A cob yeah. in Nottingham. Yeah, it's yeah. like a sort of sandwich, right? A bread roll. Yeah, bread roll, thanks. Yeah, big bread roll. Um, so, pie and a bread roll with yes, some sauce. Yes, I've had sauce. that, that's nice, yeah, yeah. yeah. With brown sauce, yeah. yeah. But a pie kebab is the thing that's really, I think, captured the public imagination. So, <laughs> is the, are the pies then sort of effectively <laughs> rotated to cook, or you just stick them all on a no, thing? No, no, like what's wrong with it? It's not like a... Pig. It's not like a hog roast. <laughs> it's a kebab, pie. A kebab you cook your pie. You put them together. You eat them together. So you, you cook them, you spear them, and you just eat them off the thing like, that, like a sword. That's a problem with this country. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know, I can't explain it to you. But we all remember the cup final. Well, the Can biggest upset, well? uh, of course, was uh, uh, Wigan beating Manchester City. Ben Watson scoring the winning goal. Right at the end. Right at the end. Because yeah. loads of people had left. Yeah. It's a lot of money spent to miss a moment of history, moment of greatness. Game. Then we got relegated, but we don't talk about that. No. But that's all right. I mean, that's I'm slightly worried about this Labour Party analogy now. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the, FA Cup, the FA Cup's not the league, is it? That's, like, that's the locals, really. Like, it counts, but the league's what you want to win. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get back to politics? Yes. So you do, I'd rather um, talk about the reshuffle. Hit <laughs> me with another one. Well, you've talked a lot about towns, and it is what you're known for. Uh, and people joke that you're not bothered about cities or villages or principalities. Um, <laughs> hamlets. Just hate those hamlets. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Obviously, you're from a town, but what is it specifically about towns that you are... <laughs> <laughs> That drives you something you literally set up the sense. Like, what the is sense. this question? Did you rehearse it like that? Like, does it is, feel like I did? What, about, what is it about towns that you find what? Yeah, but why not? Why, why not cities? Why not villages? So, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, see, the villages too small. They, cities they think it's absurd. What? Um, 
Because actually this... Right. <laughs> where, do, where do I even start with this? So I, I've been the MP for Wigan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying it. Yeah. I was trying to humour you here. But yeah. I've been the MP for Wigan for the last 12 years. And it's... I was actually born in Manchester, and I grew up in Lancashire. Okay, so you, you're scared of big cities. Yeah, I, r- I ran all the way to Newcastle to university, and then went, oh, it's a city! Ran to London, oh, it's a city! No, um, <laughs> no I didn't do that. Um, I, so, <laughs> I've been the MP for Wigan for the last 12 years, and I think that experience has taught me that there are, you know, for 40 years, places like Wigan... We've booked the trend a bit, but we've seen good jobs, secure jobs, jobs that paid a decent wage that you could raise a family on, um, that gave the opportunity for your kids to stay and contribute and live near you and for you to know your grandchildren as you grow older, that could sustain the whole life of the town, Um, you know, the high streets, the pubs, the banks, the post offices. We've watched them go. We've watched them bleed out of our communities for the last 40 years. And the last Labour government came in and said, we're going to start to rebuild. So they rebuilt and they did amazing stuff. I grew up in Manchester. It was transformed in front of my eyes, you know, from the, from the sort of crumbling ruins of the 80s. Both Manchester and Newcastle, where I later went to university, you could watch the, you know, the change and the chances for people. And the last Labour government did something else as well. They said they opened up the chance for kids to go to university. So loads of kids from Wigan went to university for the first time. They largely went to the cities, but when they looked back, they found that there was too little to return home to. So some of them would have been like me, and they would have gone on and maybe worked in in London or Manchester or elsewhere, but lots of people would have wanted to go back, and the chances just weren't there. These were our choices, not theirs. And what that's done to places like Manchester, where I was born, and London, where I later made my home for several years, is that it's forced lots of people into the same overheated parts of the country where we're massively reliant on the city of London. You saw the problems with that during the financial crash when the the city of London is the economic powerhouse of the UK and everywhere else has effectively been put into a state of managed decline under the Tories. There are only two regions in this country, London and the South East, that have prospered in 19 of the last 20 years. That's just, it's not just bad for Wigan, it's bad for Manchester, it's bad for London. You get high housing prices and people shut out of the housing ladder. You've got people in appalling rented accommodation and pressure on public services. You know, during the pandemic, remember the number of people that just couldn't get access to the vaccine or get a GP appointment in London. It was like a different world compared to what was happening in other parts of the country. And it's just, it's written off the whole country. It's, it's what is holding us back because politicians have lacked the imagination to understand that people in every part of this country have a contribution to make. And so that's why towns, really. Why towns? Because towns is the whole thing. You fix that problem, you fix the fact that we've written off whole swathes of the country, and suddenly the whole country can live up to its potential. So it's effectively that cities have weathered the storm a bit better than... T- towns have been clobbered in a way that perhaps cities haven't because of their size. So it's t- totally different experiences of, of globalisation over the last 40 yes. years. And with cities, you've got... They've boomed, but that's created these huge inequalities of like massive wealth side by side with the most appalling poverty. Why? Because the pressure... It's a pressure cooker waiting to blow. 
Whereas other places, whole swathes of the country have just been completely written off by their governments. They haven't written themselves off. We haven't written ourselves off. We know what we can achieve. And you know these waves of populism that you've seen right across the world, whether it's the 100,000 voters in the Rust Belt that switched from Clinton to Trump in the last few weeks of the campaign, who'd never voted for a Republican candidate in their life and voted for Donald Trump, or the, you know, the, the, the uprisings in France, or the, you know, the, you know, Olaf Scholz will tell you that they're seeing exactly the same phenomenon in Germany. Right around the world, we're seeing people standing up and saying we demand better for ourselves than just manage decline of our own communities and our families. And that's what no, no mainstream political party has managed to give voice to in British politics for a long time. I think now that started to change, you know, in the 2019 election, I think Boris Johnson hit a chord when he talked about levelling up. And that's why when I got moved into this job, I rang Michael Gove and said, I want you to succeed. Um, it, it's personal to me and it's important. And we've got to build a consensus on this. Like, do you remember under the last Labour government when, yeah. when I was growing up? <laughs> I know, it's like we're old enough to remember. <laughs> but I, when I was growing up, there was a... You know, there was this sort of, you know, the, the, even the idea of the Labour government. I mean, I was hmm. 17 and a half before I saw my first Labour government. What? And, yeah. and I was 14. Oh. But you look a and lot I, younger. And you've got no hair. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Oh, my God. It's almost like stand-up comedy must be quite stressful. Probably <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, yeah. Um, but, but, you know, but, but, you know... But what's your secret, then? How do you look about 20? Uh, is there a secret? <laughs> Beer. I mean, this is. I mean, it, it, there is a there is meant a point here. Is it meant to be good for you? Keir Starmer likes a beer, and Jorin's been open. Is this a kind of not a Faragist uh, element in the Labour Party, but a kind of you're more relaxed now about saying I love lager and how it makes me feel? Well, we like winning more. To be fair. <laughs> yeah, but that's harder G to get. G yeah, but give me winning over a lager any day of the week. Um, but there was a there was a consensus though that formed like under the last Labour government about when I was growing up, you know, the attitudes to the LGBT plus community were appalling. And then, you know, you had civil partnerships and you had real progress, and then you had David Cameron standing on a ticket in twenty ten where he said we'll bring an equal marriage. And a consensus was formed that I'm not saying it can't be broken, it can. There are always forces in every generation that are trying to row back progress, but a consensus was formed around that. I want there to be a consensus that this, this idea that we can write whole swathes of the country off, that's got to be consigned to the bin, hasn't it? That we, we can do better than that as a country. We can have far more ambition as political parties and as potential governments than that. I don't think we've built that consensus actually because I think the agenda is now sort of been levelled off in government. But, <laughs> um, y you know, if, if we could build a consensus around that, to me that's really, really important because it shouldn't be controversial to say that everyone has the right to contribute to the future of this country. But what is the actual answer of how you do that? So Jobs. But yes, but... Well, yes, jo but... Good jobs. But, well, yeah, I mean, no one's going to stand on think of bad jobs, but like, what... <laughs> I just think this area needs ah, more bad but No, but you say this, right? You say this, but you, there's a joke that goes around Westminster. We're not that funny, obviously, but, you know, you ask any two government ministers what levelling up means and you'll get three different answers. 
I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg was saying the other day, it's about, no, it's, he was saying the other day, it's about paying your own way. That's what levelling up means to Jacob Rees-Mogg, who you had on your show a little while ago. Um, uh, it's paying your own way, Lisa. Yeah. It's very simple. Very simple. It's yes. a vote winner. Well done, <laughs> Jacob. Um, Boris Johnson said it was about hope. Well, come on, you, you, who doesn't want the hope? You, you, Lisa Nandy, the, the anti-hope Labour Party. There might be a vacancy in Downing Street, so you should definitely go for it. Some um, people say... Give me someone who's really oh. hard to impersonate so that I can use them as the example next. Ed Miliband, thank you so much. Ed- <laughs> Lisa, I just don't think they get up. Bugger me, it can't be that hard. <laughs> you were saying? <laughs> um, I know you from Scranton. <laughs> Michael, Michael Gove has got 12 levelling up missions that supposedly define what levelling up is, which I can't even remember because there are just so many of them and they make so little sense, but more than that, that... Um, the only one that really sticks in my mind is the one about improving educational outcomes because, you know, no offence, but the worst thing to ever happen to education in this country was Michael Gove. <laughs> and, the, you know, there's a, a legacy of sort of disaster that has been left that we're still grappling with right across the country. And now we're getting these missions enshrined into law to say that we need to improve educational outcomes and life, life expectancy and so on. But then hidden in the small print of their new levelling up bill is that they can change those missions if they decide that they're not relevant anymore. (laughs) So, you know, what is... You say to me, what is it all about? It's about good jobs. You ask Michael Gove what it's about, he'll say it's about these 12 missions that should can and should be changed because that's democracy, he said to me today in the House of Commons. But But when you envision it, it's not reopening the coal mines, is it? It's building... Is it like the stuff they're doing in the West Midlands where they're building the uh, batteries for electric cars? Is it like industrial stuff? Is it service sector stuff? Is it about having other financial centres outside of London and Edinburgh? Like, what would the... If Lisa Nandy had her way... Uh, and you are Lisa Nandy. So if you had your way... <laughs> Ta-da! What better person to ask about what Lisa Nandy would like? Just, do you ever feel like... The interview is going really badly. Uh, <laughs> all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if it, if it if it helps, the feelings mutual. <laughs> well, again, we're building consensus, and that's important. Yeah. We're, we're agreed on that. Um, what would ideally in Wigan? What would a mix of what would a suite of employment uh, options look like? Okay, so let me give you an example. In Wigan, a few years ago. Um, my college principal rang me up and said, we've got a real problem. Do you remember there was a vote in Parliament about whether we were going to do airstrikes in Libya? Yes. And the vote had gone through and we were doing airstrikes in Libya, which basically means you're at war. And my college principal rang me up and said, got a real problem here. Our students have all had their bank accounts frozen. They can't pay their rent. And I said, so why have they had the what? And she said, because they're Libyan. And so, you know, when you basically go to war with a country... Like that, that's what happens, that assets get frozen and stuff. Um, and I said to her, no, I get all of that, but why are there lots of Libyan students at Wigan and Lee College? Mm-hmm. And it was because 
they come from across the world to study because we have a legacy of engineering skills that is still very much present in Wigan and lots of students come from the Middle East in order to learn the, you know, the engineering skills to work in the oil industry and elsewhere. And I sort of, you know, I rang Alistair Burt, who was the minister at the time, and said, you've got to help me. He did help. He was wonderful. And their bank accounts were unlocked very quickly and they could pay the rent again. But then I said to the college principal, well, explain to me how it works then. Why are the majority of students that are coming to Wigan studying health and social care or hair and beauty sort of courses but the engineering courses are being populated by people from across the Middle East and it's because of the job market because the big industry in Wigan at the moment is food production we've got Heinz um, you know we've got lots of health and social care jobs because we've got an aging population because the jobs have gone so lots of people are aging uh, so if you create the jobs you create the highly skilled jobs, we've got the skills to equip young people to do it. We've got the history, we've got the legacy, we could do it again. But we've never had a government, certainly not for the last decade, that's had the same level of ambition for our community than we've had for ourselves. And that's why I'm so passionate about moving power out of Westminster and Whitehall. Because whether you live in Dagenham, or you live in Wigan, or you live in Aberdeen, or Fife, or Bar Barnsley, or Burnley, or real, you know, any part of this country, Great Yarmouth. Oh I mean, no, but there are. I mean, this yeah. is the point because it's Brighton. not. It's not just. It, well, actually, yeah, Ho Hove is. I'll, I can wax the record that because <laughs> it would be the worst party in the world, worse even than than Beergate. But uh, the reason the reason that I say this is because this is not just about the north of England. This is about. Like every part of this country. Ipswich, Scarborough. Oh no, that's not. No, hang on, uh, hang on. No, but Norwich, Kings Lynn. Stoke on Trent. Stoke on Trent. Yeah. Newcastle under Lyme. Um, <laughs> hang on, Barnet. Barnet. Yeah. Barnet. Uh, Brentford. <laughs> it's like one of those drinking games, isn't it, where you have to yeah. sort of net. Do you remember Mallet's Mallet? Yes. Do you, do you remember? Oh, it? It's like, yeah, it's like one of my favourite yeah, yeah. things ever. So, for those of you who are under the age of about thirty-five, this will mean nothing to you. But there was a Saturday morning show where Timmy Mallet used to get two kids who would uh, not know what they'd let themselves in for, and you had to say a word like um, towns. Yeah. <laughs> Lisa and Andy. <laughs> yes. And. The, the other person has to say something that's connected to it. Word and then you have to go backwards. Yeah, word association, thank you very much. And then if you get it wrong, you get slimed or yeah. hit on the head with a mallet. Yeah. It was uh, a soft mallet. But it, it did look like it hurt, actually. It really lent into yeah. it sometimes. But this it? is basically, we, we've recreated Mallet's Mallet, which I think may be my proudest political achievement today. <laughs> if you could have gone on any of the kids' TV shows that you adored, what would you have gone on? Dungeons and Dragons. Really? Yeah. Because oh, I, I just, I always felt so frustrated towards the end. Because I thought, if you just stop mucking around, looking after uni, you could get back to your world. And I knew that if they'd let me have a go at it, I definitely could have got us back to our world. But they never. Sorry, this is quite niche. <laughs> I love the fact that even in Dungeons and Dragons, you're trying to improve the local community. <laughs> I actually have quite strong views on Dog Tanyan as well, but we can leave that for another day. What about Nightmare? Because that was a bit like Dungeons and Dragons, wasn't it? That was and the bit at the end where you go. See was you Nightmare in this that thing where they walked around with yeah, they had like a big helmet on? Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, no, I, I wasn't a big fan of that, actually. Da- Danger Mouse was more so my scene. What the fuck that? It was a mouse, not a dog. Yeah, Danger Mouse, yeah. Did someone just woof woof? I think so. I don't know what but of the ones that was like, so you would have gone on Dungeons and Dragons. So were you sort of into computer games? Were you a bit of a nerd? Um, Did you have friends? <laughs> Do I have friends? <laughs> um, West Street sent me some nice messages recently. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong number. <laughs> What, what messages did he Thank see? you for your support. <laughs> I'm trying to kill him. Phone bank on Saturday. I'm starting to think that that woof woof was one of my staff in the audience saying, just shut up. <laughs> um, uh, oh, what I, can't nice I can't remember what you're asking me. What were you asking? Oh, yeah, was, um, did I have any friends when I was growing <laughs> up? Yeah, thanks for that. I like to think so. But, <laughs> but were you a bit nerdy then? Because Dungeons and Dragons are sort of nerdy. No, too. not really. I just. Just, um, I, I never, like, I had a computer, like, um, one of those, um, like, a, I can't remember what you call it, like, a sort of... Commodore. A, no, I want to say Amstrad, is that a thing? Yeah, Amstrad, yeah, thing? yeah, with a joystick. Yeah, that's it, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, not, not like that. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag me too. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's... <laughs> Really, really good. People are going to really wonder at what hands. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. Um, so then, what message did West Streeting send you that was so nice? Um, just um, sent me a message the other day because we're both getting basically people asking us questions like you started asking me, and it's um, both of us are out sort of batting for team labour at the moment and the country that we think can be better than this, and it's a bit. It is, you know, do you know, can I just be serious for a moment? It is kind of, just for one moment, and then we'll go back to Danger Mouse. But it is, there is a, there is a, you know, you join the Labour Party because you believe by the strength of our common endeavour we achieve more than we achieve alone. And for most, most of us worth our, it says it on the back of our membership card, or used to, I don't think it does anymore. Um, What does it say now? Nothing, it just gives you, it just a small print or something, you know, I don't know. Um, but it, you do join you, you do join it because you care more about what's happening in the country than you care about you know anything else, and th- there's something really corrosive about this environment that we've got into where you know for 12 years now I've seen this constant speculation about who's coming to save us, what individual is going to sort all of this out. You know, if David had won rather than Ed, would it be different? You know, Dan Jarvis is a great friend of mine. If he's going to, he could come in and sort everything out. Somebody could just sort this out for Labour and get us into power. And like, I come from a family. My dad was, you know, came to this country in the 50s. He helped to write the Race Relations Act. You know, members of my family were involved in the Indian independence movement. You know, I've got people uh, who, you know, welcomed Gandhi to the UK during the strike that was crippling the mills because they knew that solidarity amongst working class people is the answer. Uh, Throughout our history, there has never ever been anything that has been won worth its salt by one person alone. And I think we've got ourselves into a mindset, we've allowed ourselves to get into a debate about individuals and how individuals change things. And you know, I said to you before that Kia you know, that conversation that we had about good, strong teams and that he's put good people into those posts and he's not afraid of that. 
that to me is a really important moment in the Labour Party because we don't achieve things by ourselves. It does take a movement. And if we're going to change this country and you look at all of the problems that we've got now as a country and all of the things that are holding us back, all those big structural forces that need to change, it is going to take a movement. It's going to take every ounce of our energy and creativity. That's what drives me to say, don't write people off, don't write places off, don't write places like my community off and the people in it. And that's why, you know, sort of joking aside, why I think it does get us down when we're pitted against one another. We've got to work together. We are going to work together and we're going to sort it out. So you, I would say you and West Street... By the way, my last guest here, Andrew Marr, when I asked him who he thinks the next person to win an election for, or, you know, after Keir Starmer, who the people that he thinks would be the best, he did say you and West Streeting. Um, and he didn't know that you were my next two guests, so like, he wasn't trying to plug the show. So he genuinely, <laughs> genuinely said it unprompted. Um, you two especially, what's interesting about you, the two of you um, is that you're often the two people that are named. You're also, visibly and vocally, the most ferociously loyal to Keir Starmer. Uh, it, sometimes other people allow a sort of subtle little sort of nod and a wink. You and Wes are absolutely, totally loyal in public. Uh, when you see other people perhaps <laughs> allow a bit of daylight into what is still a defence of Keir, uh, how do you feel? Do you ever say to them, stop being such a git? <laughs> Uh, how do I answer that? Firstly, I would say you don't. It's almost impossible to win when your name is in the frame to be the next or next but one leader of the Labour Party. You know, once once. Ah, so that's why you're doing it. You're trying to like dampen it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, well, this is ca- this kind of what Wes messaged me about the other day. Both like ah. <laughs> Um, you know, you go out, you go out and bat for Team Labour. Yeah. You're, you know, you're, you're being over loyal. You're overdoing it. You go yeah. out, you know, protest too much. You go out yeah. and you go quiet. They're yeah. plotting. They're all in a room plotting. <laughs> there must be fundraising. Fundraising together. Fundraising against each other. You know, it's just, it's impossible. But, but I think, um, so I think the first thing I would say is that I think you can read motivations into what anyone is saying, depending on what you want to write. And I have a lot of sympathy for anybody whose name has been put into the frame because in these sorts of situations, you can't do right from wrong. Um, But the second thing I would say is that I have told lots of people in the Labour Party that they've been a git over the years, and I've been told it too. And I think that's pretty healthy, actually. I think we have a robust debate in in our party. Behind, We're like a family, so we we will debate it out. We We will say what we think, and then we will go out and bat for the team and bat for the country. And one of the things that I found really, really difficult over the last few years in the run-up to 2019 is that we weren't able to do that anymore. Yeah, Harold Wilson once said this thing that, I think it was Harold Wilson, he said the Labour Party's like a bird. It needs its right and its left wing to fly. And that contest, that challenge that we've always provided to one another, that's what means that we can speak for the whole country because we're hearing what different people have to say and we're reflecting that in our own internal debates. And I, I think we lost the art of that, not just in Labour, but in politics in recent years. We lost the ability to debate well, to disagree well. We thought that unity meant uniformity, and it just absolutely doesn't. And I think a little bit of that, a little bit of that sense of being able to you know, re- hear people 
who think differently from you without feeling challenged by it, I think that started to creep back into our politics. When I say that we really are at a crossroads as a country, part of that is about the political culture that I believe in, that I've fought for for a long time. I think if Labour doesn't win the next election, given that Johnson is you know, potentially the, the candidate on the ballot paper, I think that, that ability to understand one another that has been lost, I think we, we could we could have real real problems. And so I think there's more at stake, actually, for this entire country, whether you're Labour or you're Conservative or you're something else or you're none of the above. There's something really important at stake about how we do politics in this country and the political poison that we've allowed to develop. And we've got to defeat that. And we've got to defeat it by showing that we can do things differently in the Labour Party. That was a very big answer to your jibe at Andy Burnham earlier in this <laughs> show. I got on very well with Andy Burnham. It's the jokes are not personal. They are purely comedy. <laughs> I mean, it's a good that the analogy about needing a left wing and a right wing is good. I mean, if you expand the analogy, the Labour Party needs a left wing and a right wing, but doesn't that also tell you that the brains are in the centre? <laughs> well, this is like as bad as base camp, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> sort of starting to lose any sense of what we're talking about here. Good point. I'll take some questions from the audience. So, oh, uh, if, I, if I can ask for one-sentence questions, please, and one-sentence answers, and for the purposes of the tape, I have to repeat the question, which I know becomes quite tedious, but yes, the lady there. about cancelling the rise in national insurance and on a windfall tax on energy companies. But what one policy would you personally put in the next Labour manifesto? What one policy would you personally put in the next Labour manifesto? That was a brilliant question and it was one sentence. <laughs> it, was, it is a brilliant question and the answer is um, good jobs back in every community. So Rachel said at Labour Party conference £28 billion a year every year for a decade to tackle climate change. That means good jobs back into places, our post-industrial towns, our coastal communities in every nation and region of this country so that young people have choices and chances, so that no community is written off. And most of all, so that we get money back into people's pockets to spend in the local community, to sustain the social fabric. Michael Gove will tell you, you can have a lick of paint on the high street to paper over the cracks. You can have a few more hanging baskets. But we've had... 40 years of different attempts to throw little pots of money at places. What is missing and what has eroded the whole basis of local economies is the fact that those good jobs have been bleeding out of places for years. So that is my pitch, my starter for 10. But if anyone's got any other ideas, we've got a bit more space in the manifesto, so <laughs> happy to take suggestions. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, in the middle there. Um, so obviously your shadow um, levelling up... Um, it's really hard to like put into the housing market into a single question, um, yeah. but to, to put into like Twitter terms. But like, are you like a yimby or a nimby? Are you are you a yimby or a nimby? Are you not in my backyard or are you yes in my backyard? So, <laughs> I'm making so much <laughs> I know, you would genuinely think the Me Too movement has oh, never happened. No. Um, okay, so, um, I think that this yimby-nimby debate really um, does down a lot of people in this country. 
I look at what's happened in my own community and the um, we've had housing development and nobody was opposed to housing development until it turned out that the housing development was on the green belt rather than the brownfield sites because nobody in government could be bothered to stump up a few quid to help us decontaminate places that had had coal mines and industrial use for a long time. Small amount of money would have meant that we could build on sites that weren't used, that were derelicts, rather than green open spaces that people really value. Uh, and those houses were worth half a million quid in a town where average wages are well below the national average and people are really struggling to survive. We could change that if we tilted power back to people who had a stake in the outcome and skin in the game. That I've never ever seen a community as welcoming as mine in Wigan in my life. People are decent, they do want new homes, they, but they also want their kids to have a chance to be able to live in those new homes and they don't want to be priced out of the village that they grew up in and they hope to die in as well. So I think we could do a lot better than the debate. I, you know, I, I've been a councillor in Hammersmith watching one side of this equation where people are absolutely stuffed when they try and get a decent home, uh, a secure home, but I've seen the other side of the equation as well, where people's communities are absolutely destroyed by people who come in, whether it's developers or private landlords, and they buy, buy up huge swathes of the housing stock or develop homes that we can't afford to live in, and then they bleed us for every single penny that we've got. We've been looking at plans, sorry, this I'll shut up in a minute, but we've been looking at plans in, in the lead party about how you tilt power back to communities to deal with that. So, you know, one example is that who owns, who owns large swathes of our housing stock and our land? Um, this is something that the Tories promised to tackle in their 2015, 2017 and 2019 manifestos. But when I went and had a look at who owned Wigan, it was mainly Jersey, Guernsey, Cayman Islands, Jersey, Guernsey, Cayman Islands, London, and so on and so on. That's got to be wrong, hasn't it? We need to put power back into local hands so that we can build the housing that we need for the people who need it and provide opportunities for young people to stay and contribute, not just pile them into small corners of the country where there's already enormous pressure on housing stock and land as well. Okay, so Mimby, maybe in my backyard. <laughs> um, how do you do this? In my backyard, if it works for my backyard. What's that? <laughs> yeah. Mimby, if Mimby? I mean, if Michael Gove can <laughs> call his department D-Look, I can have that sort of acronym, no? Totally agree. I mean, D-Look, what is that? What is D-Look? It's his department. It's, do you know... Department for... It's department for levelling up housing communities, local government, um, planning policy, anti-Semitism, future of the United Kingdom. I found that in these bullet points nestled between bins and planning policy. It's a future of the United Kingdom. Um, he's basically been on a supermarket sweep yeah. around Whitehall <laughs> and grabbed whatever he can get his hands on and put it into a department and then had the amazing foresight to name it D-Look. But then... Which sounds like a bit like down on your look, no? Yeah, but then... What was it? For the United... What was the last bit? It's fuck, is. Future of the United future Kingdom. Future of the United Kingdom, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think he'd say it's for the United Kingdom as well, but future of the United Kingdom, yeah. Okay, one last final question, the greatest question of the night. Yes, the lady over if there. If it's not about Britney Spears, I am leaving in protest. Okay. Well, no, I love Britney Spears. Yeah! <laughs> Free Britney.
people of color. Like, I've never liked the Tories. I still don't like the Tories, but they <coughs> came a time when Rishi was like very visible um, that people were saying, he could be the next prime minister. And I was a bit torn. I was like, if he becomes prime minister, that would make actually a positive symbolic impact on kids from my community. Like, where I see kids uh, that are people of color and the ideas about where they feel like they can go. And also, in Europe, like to have a, a, to be from a country with um, a, a brown prime minister, I think that would set such a good example. So why can't Labour? Yeah, I said my. Why? <laughs> why are the Tories better at um, having politicians who are people of colour in, in more prominent positions? And I guess as well, the Tories have had two female leaders, and, and Labour's never had one. So why does Labour struggle more with gender and race in prominent positions than the Tories do? And um, I mean, there's there's a sort of long and a short answer. Um, I mean, the short answer is I think that the Tories are ruthlessly and relentlessly focused on winning power, and I think they understood not that they should uh, walk the walk, not just talk the talk, but that it would be an election winner if they reflected the country uh, and that you know the the people that they want to vote for them were reflected at the highest levels of government. I think they've got their own representation problems, though. By the way, I mean they're not the most diverse bunch when it comes to class or income, for example. So they've got, they've got some way to go. But, um, you know, for me, this is absolutely existential for Labour. I grew up as a mixed-race kid in the northwest of England in the 1980s in a lone parent household. I've got two loving parents, not a single parent home, but, you know, a lone parent household brought up by my mum at a time when like single mums were under attack by the Tory government and by sections of the media. Representation matters. It's always mattered to me. And if it matters to me, I would warrant that it matters to a lot of the country. We've made big strides forward, you know, not least because of women like Tessa Jowell um, and Harriet Harman and others. We've, we've made some progress in relation to race. And, you know, people like Diane Abbott, who've stood up consistently and spoken out over and over again whether we disagree on you know, some aspects of the Labour Party or not, it matters that you have women like that, people, people of different backgrounds, who are prepared to stand up and speak out and represent our party. And you know, f I was asked at a fundraiser, I was doing a fundraiser for one of our local Labour parties on Thursday, and I was asked if, you know, did I consider it unfair that you know, there was a young working class lad from former mining community in the audience, you know, would first in his family to go to university, wanted to stand for Labour, but said he'd been disadvantaged by an all-women shortlist. But my answer is absolutely unequivocal. Until we look like, unless we look like the country that we seek to represent, we don't have the right to go out and seek people's votes. And so we do what we need to do in order to be that party. And I think I can't, I can't say to you why it hasn't happened, but I know why progress has happened. It's because good people have stood up and said it has to happen. And for as long as we're not selecting those candidates, we've got to step in and make sure that they get that shot. Just the final thing I would say is that, you know, I became the first ever woman to represent Wigan when I was elected in 2010. And I know that there's a, you know, live debate about, you know, whether people, you know, w whether it's fair to keep people off shortlists. But the truth is that we'd had an all-male shortlist in Wigan for hundreds of years. You cannot tell me that there was never a woman good enough to represent my town before I came along. It's just simply not true. 
And I think part of the problem is that we look to authority figures and we replicate in our own image. You know, if you've never had a member of parliament who's anything but a white middle-aged man, then the chances are you'll select another white middle-aged man. And that's why representation matters, because young people like me growing up in Manchester can look to our role models and sit and people in authority and think, I could do that. And the people choosing us think, you could do that as well. So I give you my word that, you know, whatever happens over the next few years, I will never give up fighting to make sure that we walk the walk in Labour, not just talk the talk. My dad said to me once, he you know, wrote the Race Relations Act along with Roy Jenkins and lots of other very talented people. And I said to him a few years ago, where did it all go? You know, my, my generation sort of started to believe, I think, that progress was inevitable. And he said, it's absolutely not. If you want it, you have to go out and fight for it every day. In every generation, you'll have people pulling this way and people pulling that way. And it's up to every successive generation to take up the baton and to go and fight those battles again. It was a wake-up call to me, and I fully intend that we will keep fighting these battles in Labour for as long as I have breath in my body to do so. <laughs> Which may, may not be that much longer if I have to endure more of Matt Ford <laughs> <laughs> and his why towns questioning. <laughs> Well, I, I guess in what you're saying in answer to that is, wouldn't it be great if at some point we had a Prime Minister who uh, was uh, female, working class, mixed race? Give up. Just give up. Who would that be? Somebody who likes a pint? <laughs> Why does anyone come on this show? What did you do to, what did you do to Jacob Rees-Mogg out of interest? What did I do to him? Yeah. Um, well, I just had a good laugh with him. Did you? He was a great. <laughs> he was great. Was anyone here for the Jacob Rees-Mogg night? He was great, Ooh. wasn't he? Okay. <laughs> this is like your revision. <laughs> We're all going to get scored out of ten. Please don't give me nil point. Well, look, you wanted this system. You're about to be subjected to it. Twelve uh, points. Do pick a number out of ten, and on the count of three, give Lisa and Andy a score out of ten. Okay. One, two, three. Ten. Ten. Also, yeah. the number on the door. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Next to where you might end up living. So, Lisa, what a treat this has been. Ladies and gentlemen, before we say thank you to the fantastic Lisa and Andy, please a huge round of applause for yourselves for being such a wonderful audience. So, on Avalon and the Duchess Theatre, who's made tonight possible. Oh! My guest coming up in two weeks' time. Oh, here we go. Lisa's friendly text friend. Wes Streeting. <laughs> we will get his side of that story. Why did you make it sound so creepy? I, I didn't mean to. <laughs> I just didn't know how else to put it. Um, so, get Wes's side of that illicit text exchange. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this has been... A phenomenal, phenomenal... This genuinely has been one of the best episodes ever recorded. It's been so much fun. What and are the other ones on. like? <laughs> <laughs> so close to being as good as this. <laughs> Fine margins. Ladies and gentlemen, please, a huge thank you for the fantastic... Lisa Nandy! <laughs> yeah!
Well, there you go, Lisa Nandy. What a whole load of fun that was. That flew. I think that's the fastest one I've ever done. I couldn't believe how quickly the time went. Um, and <laughs> got through a couple of lagers, although I didn't want the Holston, which was a bit of a disappointment. It genuinely is a lovely lager. I think for some people, I think it's sort of like spam. People go, oh, that's just old and rubbish. But it's not. It tastes delicious. I'm not necessarily saying that spam does, although I do quite like it. Why not relax with and enjoy this episode with a tin of spam and a can of Holston pills? The sophisticated way to enjoy a political podcast. Um, so come to the West Streeting Show on Monday, the 30th of May. That is going to be an absolute riot. And come to all the other shows as well. You can get tickets for all of them at mattford.com slash live. And um, yes, thank you for downloading this. Share, subscribe, leave a review, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.